You guys ready to get in the Word today? We have been in a series taking a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is this message that Jesus delivered on the side of, let's be honest, it was a hill. Um, you know, but we like to say we're surrounded by mountains. We're surrounded by hills. There's taller mountains in the world. Jesus goes up and sits on the side of one of those, and a group of people come. A few hundred people probably come and listen to him talk. We've been walking our way through this sermon, and we're going to continue doing that. Let's take a moment, though, and just give a, a little bit of our attention uh, to a refresher. Just a couple of things that we've been talking about. We spent some time learning about what kind of person Jesus calls blessed. Remember, Jesus makes these eight radical statements. We call them the Beatitudes. We learned that our being blessed is meant to be shared with the world. You remember Jesus called us salt and light, and that we're supposed to flavor the world and bring brightness to the darkness in the world. Uh, and then last week, Pastor Mark, didn't he do just such a good job bringing the word last Sunday? Uh, from Pastor Mark, we well, really from Jesus, but thanks to Pastor Mark for delivering the message, we heard that Jesus explained that he didn't come to abolish the law, but actually to accomplish the law, right? And it's important that we understand and we realize that this is a progression of thoughts. You see, the Sermon on the Mount is not an, a disconnected group of statements that Jesus once made that Matthew compiled together. It's actually believed that this was a legitimate sermon that Jesus delivered. Now, what we don't really know is if he continued to expound on this afterwards. It's possible that he could have been doing that for quite some time. It would probably take about 10 minutes, uh, maybe more, maybe 10 to 15 minutes if you read slowly like I do, uh, that, that you could move all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, if I were just to read it to you from beginning to end. He may have been up there longer, uh, but he was at least there for 10 minutes sharing this progression of thoughts. The Sermon on the Mount is not the New Testament Proverbs, isolated statements. And that is important to remember, not only just to know that Jesus gave this as one cohesive thought, but it also is important to remember so that we know that just like this sermon, just like any other sermon, these ideas build on themselves. And so Jesus says one thing so that he can say another thing. Last week, like I said, like we remembered, Pastor Mark came and reminded us that Jesus came not to abolish but to accomplish the law. And then Jesus makes six statements after that. We're actually going to spend the next five weeks after today going through these six statements as sort of a mini-series within our journey through the entire Sermon on the Mount. Jesus had this way of saying things in a couple of sentences, what's going to take me an entire sermon to unpack. So that's why it's taking us so long. Uh, but these statements are designed to demonstrate what a law-fulfilling life should look like. Because you remember, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And now he's going to say six things that it should look like if we are going to also try to live to fulfill the law. And that can be a little bit confusing for us because we think in the New Testament we don't have to live according to the law anymore. And Jesus has got some things to say about that as well. Uh, Jesus also said uh, some things that, again, because we think New Testament, Jesus died on the cross, we don't have to think about the law anymore. You could kind of hear these six statements as going, see, Jesus doesn't, doesn't believe in the law. He's just, he's just undoing the law, which can be really confusing if you're thinking, wait, he didn't come to abolish, he came to accomplish, but then he's sort of like tearing down the teaching of the law. I'm really confused. Dallas Willard wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. He's one of my theological heroes. Uh, and, and he actually kind of puts us into the moment with the crowd. Dallas Willard says, it sounded to the crowd as if Jesus had set the law aside. 
However, because remember, he, he says all of this stuff about I didn't come to uh, abolish, I came to accomplish. But then he actually goes into these statements where he says, you might have heard that it was said about the law, but I'm actually telling you this. And so Dallas Willard says, it might have sounded like he set the law aside. However, the law that they had in mind, that they had rubbed up against every day, was not actually the law of God. It was a contemporary version of religious respectability, very harsh and oppressive in application, that Jesus referred to as the goodness of the scribes and the Pharisees. This was in chapter 5, verse 20. Mark uh, taught us about that last Sunday. Dallas Willard goes on, he says, the fulfillment that Jesus had in mind was not for the purpose of making them humanly acceptable, that's quite another matter, but fulfillment of God's law is important because the law is good, it is right for human life, and the presence of the kingdom brings us all that, all that is right for human life. Uh, Dallas Willard goes on and on and on. It's a good, big, thick, long book that you have to read 30 times just to understand. Uh, and I'm getting a doctorate degree, uh, so if you ever read anything by Dallas Willard and you're like, I don't understand that, you're in great company, right? No, you need the Holy Spirit to understand Scripture. You might even need it to understand Dallas Willard. Uh, but what we're really going to do is focus on what Jesus said today. Jesus frames out what life in the kingdom of God should actually look like by making six con contrasting statements. He's saying, this is what you heard taught about the law. This is what the law actually means. This was the, the heart of the matter, the intent of the law. So again, he says it, you've heard it said. And what he was doing there was he wasn't addressing the, the law itself. He was addressing the way the law was being taught. You see, the Jewish teachers, the scribes and the Pharisees, they had this, they had this ability to just pile rules and regulations on top of the actual law of God. And they did it with good intentions. They really wanted to honor the law of God, and so they kept adding regulations to make sure that they would honor all of the law and all of the different rules and regulations. Uh, but Jesus actually says, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So he's saying, whatever you've heard about the law, whatever you heard that doesn't agree with the law, the people who taught you that, we're considering them the least in the kingdom of heaven. And so I'm going to give you a chance to get it right, he says. I'm going to give you a chance to, to see what it would look like to live according to the kingdom of heaven law, not the Pharisees' law. So again, just to clarify, Jesus is not angry with the crowd. For the record, most of the people in the crowd who were hearing him that day couldn't even read, so they really had to depend on what they were taught, on what they had heard that it was said about the law. Jesus is taking issue with the teachers, and then he's saying, so let me teach you a better way. So Jesus comes to set the record straight. He comes to, to define what the law looks like, to reveal the heart of the matter, and to help people live freely instead of being oppressed by the law of the scribes and the Pharisees. So that's a little bit of an introduction of where we're going to go for the next six weeks, today included. Uh, and today we're actually going to look at the first of the six con confrontations that Jesus has with the way that the law was being taught. And as you heard Kristen read to us a few minutes ago, Jesus is addressing what they've heard about this idea called murder. In fact, he begins by saying, you've heard that it was said to your ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. And we should all just give a good hearty amen to that right? Like, don't murder. If you've been doing any murder recently, cut it out, right? Just don't do that. 
But there's a rabbi, uh, Rabbi Freed, who actually explains part of the Jewish thinking on the teaching of murder that would actually help us to understand why Jesus is making this statement the way that he does. Uh, Rabbi Freed says, the Torah, in fact, never said, thou shalt not kill. Instead, the Torah says in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not murder. There's a distinction there, and he goes on to say, this distinction is not simply an exercise of semantics. It's not just wordplay. In Torah thought and in Torah law, there is a profound distinction between killing and murdering. And here he defines his terms. He says, to murder is to wrongly end, uh, to wrongly end the life of an innocent human being. And to kill is to end the life of another human being whose life has already lost its meaning. Okay, so to find the terms, to murder is to wrongly end the life of an innocent human being. To kill is to end the life of another human being whose life has already lost its meaning. If I, were, if I had all the time in the world and this was a different sermon, I might begin to talk about uh, our, our theology around things like capital punishment and warfare and how do we make a distinction uh, where those things are right and wrong. Uh, and, and you'd have to hear the whole sermon to understand that I don't think Jesus would say that if you've ever enlisted and served your country and the result of your serving your country was the death of another person that you therefore are condemned to judgment in hell. I don't think that that's what Jesus would teach, but there are distinctions and nuances and things that we need to understand here, right? But I don't have time to get into that. Uh, we might need to write a book on that one day. Uh, but the interpretation of the law in Jesus' day was, was no unjust ending of human life, no murder. Just, just don't murder somebody. But then we would automatically understand that this leaves room for a world of other things that would be seen as allowable, right? So you can hold anger in your heart. You can hold resentment towards another person. You can even hate somebody. You can say anything you want about that person. You can do all kinds of evil stuff against them or to get in their way. Just don't actually unjustly end their life. No murder. That part, that's against God's law. That's what you've heard that it was said. But then Jesus says, I've actually got a different interpretation. Pastor David Guzik says, Jesus exposed the essence of the heresy of the scribes and the Pharisees. To them, the law was only a matter of external performance, but never the heart. They thought it was fine as long as they actually never murdered anybody. But Jesus says, I'm going to take this law away from them and their faulty interpretation, and I'm going to bring it back to the heart. So Jesus was saying the issue is not with your actions against other people. The issue begins with your heart. If we can get that right, your actions will probably sort themselves out. And so if you're like me, when I was first beginning to understand and listen to Jesus' teaching on this issue where he says, you've heard that it was said, don't murder, you might be thinking, Jesus, what's the big deal? I mean, anger is just an emotion. You might be somewhere on the other end of the spectrum where you, you might think, oh, yeah, Jesus, I totally understand this because anger is just outright bad. You can't ever be angry. And wherever you land on that spectrum, I think that there's something that Jesus would have to teach us today. It is true that anger is just an emotion, and it is inherently not in and of itself a sin. After all, Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, be angry and do not sin which affirms that anger and sin are not synonymous automatically. So anger is not a sin, but it is dangerous. 
because it gives the devil an opportunity. In fact, that's how Paul ends his thought. He says, don't give the devil an opportunity. The opportunity is to use our emotions against us, to use our emotions to control and manipulate our lives into sin. And we actually live in a world where that seems to be really encouraged. Have you watched the news? Every moment you watch the news, you were told who your enemy is and who you should hate. It's the other political party. It's those people in the other country. It's the people who think that the people who don't agree with you are the good guy or the bad guy, right? I mean, it gets so confusing that by the end of it, your head hurts because I don't even, am I just supposed to hate myself? Did I become the bad guy just from watching the news? On social media, we see things that we don't agree with and we are encouraged to use rude language because rude language gets attention. The result is a growing divide between people and increasing tension. And we're even told that anger should drive our conviction for social justice work. I cannot tell you the number of times in the last year and a half that I was told, you are not angry enough. And I I would just respond to that and say, you are always too angry. Dallas Willard, again, I'm going to quote him a lot in this series, just so you know. (laughs) Dallas Willard wrote, anger indulged instead of simply waved off always has in it an element of self-righteousness and vanity. He says, find a person who embraced anger and you will find a person with a wounded ego. I'm going to quote him a lot because he says stuff that was like, "I I, I, I wish I had said that. Here's what we need to understand. Anger is a reaction to something outside of ourself, right? But anger is also an opportunity to make a choice. You have an emotion. You have an emotion called anger in the same way that you have an emotion called happiness. And and then you have a choice. What am I going to do with that emotion? How will I choose to act out of my anger? Or will I project my own wounded ego onto somebody else and wound them because, as they say, hurting people hurt people? And we do this, by the way, we act out of our anger because we feel like it's a position of power and control. And this is where people get addicted to anger. Have you ever met a person who just doesn't know how to not be angry? I've said this from the pulpit before. This won't be a shock to those of you who've known me for a while or who've heard me say this, but I was speaking to my counselor once, and she said to me this question that left me completely undone. She said, Tim, you know how you're, like, always angry but just below the surface? We need to talk about that. And I said, that's not fair. (laughs) And then I said, but you're also right. Because that was true about me. I didn't know how to deal. I didn't know how to process with the anger that I felt like I was constantly just keeping down. And any time that you're just trying to keep an emotion down and not actually holding it here in front of you and dealing with it, you're in trouble. But this is what we're trained to do with our anger is either to project it on somebody else or keep it down and pretend that it's not really there. And as Christians, we train ourselves to do that a lot. Oh, and we're good at it. We call this behavior modification. Sorry, we call this discipleship. But it's actually behavior modification. Discipleship is actually something different. We just mixed up our terms. So Jesus is not taking issue with anger itself. His problem is when you choose to project your anger onto others instead of submitting your feelings of anger to God, which is what we should do. But 
I'm going to let you off the hook here because this sermon is not meant to be a therapy session. I would like to say, though, that if you, like me, have ever found yourself in a place where you struggle with what you do with your anger, I would very much strongly recommend to you that you don't buy the lie that says that as a Christian you can't have a therapist. Go get one. Go get one that knows Jesus so that they don't point you just to self-help, but they point you to Jesus who helps, right? But go get a therapist. In fact, we have a resource connected to our church where we could give you a list of Christian therapists, and if you needed the financial help, we've even paid for people's first session with a counselor. If you need help, get help. But get Jesus' help, right? Okay, so, okay, not a therapy session. Whew. Okay, you didn't come for therapy. There's no couch in here. For the rest of the time today that we have with you, I just want to briefly unpack and look at three things that Jesus says. Jesus actually draws out our attention to the results of anger, and I think this is really significant. He, he gives our attention to three different things. And so I, I want to talk about three points that Jesus makes that are, that, that are about the response to anger that we have that is often problematic. And the first one that Jesus says is we get in trouble when we find ourselves holding anger. Jesus says everyone who is angry with his brother's brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anger is not a sin. It is impossible to go through your life and never be angry. Right? If you're sitting here trying to be like, I've never been angry, Pastor Tim, well, you're at least a liar. <laughs> and now you can be angry that I said that about you. <laughs> but the issue isn't getting angry, the issue is holding anger. Yeah. Right? To hold anger in your heart is to refuse to forgive. And the Bible is very clear refusing or withholding uh, forgiveness is actually a sin. And that's why Jesus says that you would be subject to judgment. If you, if you are angry at a brother or a sister, you're withholding forgiveness, and you would be subject to judgment because we are refusing to offer the very thing that Jesus offered us. Paul wrote about this uh, more than once. He says in Colossians 3, As God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one, other, with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has received a has, has a grievance against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also are to forgive. That's Colossians 3, 12 through 13. And again, in Ephesians 4, 31 and 32, Paul writes, Let all bitterness, anger, and wrath, and shouting, and slander be removed from you. So in Colossians, he says, put on all of these good things. In Ephesians, he says, take off all of these negative things, right? Oh, and then he says, along with all malice as well. Get, get rid of that too. And then he says, and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God forgave you in Christ. So the work here is to let go of anger, to, to take it off like a jacket that doesn't really fit you, right? Uh, we got home from Sayla's birthday party yesterday. She turned 11, actually, officially during worship this morning. Her friends were doing a countdown. Um, and so I now officially have an 11-year-old daughter. But we got home from her birthday party, which was outdoors, and I, I just, like, needed to, like, I had this long sleeve shirt on, and it was hot outside. And I, like, I, it was supposed to be cold yesterday. And then I got outside, and I was setting up for the party, and I immediately regretted my shirt choice. Ever had one of those days? Yeah. 
So I just like I needed to just change my shirt. It's just like this is constricting. And it wouldn't it be great if we would look at our anger and say, This is constricting me. I need to find a way to get this off. That's what Paul is encouraging us to do, to do that work. We can do this by reminding ourselves that Jesus died for us, and he also died for the person that we are holding unforgiveness towards. We can do this by praying for that person. Okay, let's start by praying for ourselves. We'll pray that, that God would, would help us in the place where we are offended or help us to find healing in our pain or uh, relief in our anger. And, and then we can pray for the other person, right? But we pray for that person, uh, well, again, it's not a therapy session, but don't pray that they would be judged. Pray that they would be, uh, pray that they would be blessed. In fact, find a way to bless them. We'll talk about that again in a little bit. So we get into trouble when we hold our anger. And the second thing that Jesus says is that we get into trouble when we find ourselves speaking anger. He says this in verse 22. He says, whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. We do a lot of these like call and response things in church where we go, say to your neighbor, right? Don't say this one to your neighbor. But Jesus uses two specific words in this text. Uh, one is, uh, I think the pronunciation would be more. We would, it's M-O with like a mark on the top, R-E, in our kind of transliteration from Greek. And then the other word is raka. And these two words distinctly mean, uh, raka means empty, foolish, and worthless. And this word more is to call someone dull or stupid. These are words you never thought you'd hear from the pulpit, right? But believe me, if I were to tell you the actual modern English equivalency of these words, it would be inappropriate considering that I'm like playing the preacher role right now from the pulpit and there's like mixed company in the room. It just, it wouldn't be right for me to actually say the words that Je the, co the weight of what Jesus was trying to communicate in this moment. It, it, think of it maybe this way, is it, think of the word you think that I'm thinking of and then think of how if I said it, there would be a <gasps> in the room. That's what Jesus was trying to communicate. But, but it's not just that the words are cuss words. It's that the modern equivalent is a harsh insult that points to the use of anger or contempt in your language directed to a person or about a person. And these words to say that a person is empty, foolish, worthless, dull, or stupid is, is, is anger in using words in a desire to hurt a person, and it's contempt in using words to express that a person has no value. Interestingly, by the way, remember when we defined that word kill earlier, that it says that it's okay if you can determine that a person has lost their human value. Jesus is actually saying if you use words that determine that a person has no value, you're in sin. So suddenly we can extrapolate that out and say maybe even killing is problematic in certain context. Hmm. Let's talk about contempt for a second. Dallas Willard says that contempt is worse than anger. Contempt is sounding, uh, is sounding like words that are designed to diminish another person's value. Contempt actually leads to abuse of individuals and abuse of power. Contempt is the way that we say things that say, you have less value than me. Contempt is what I felt, if even if he didn't understand what he was doing in the moment, when my dad made me feel like I wasn't smart when I was a kid because of his words. It was 
a contempt. It, it made me feel less than. But contempt is also the systemic thing that says one group of people or race is better than another. Contempt is the thing that drove slavery. Contempt is the source of child abuse. Contempt is the source of misogyny, which is to say that men are better, women need to be barefoot and in the kitchen and have no role in leadership or should just stay home and not get a job. I mean, it's a lot more than that, but you understand what I'm saying. C contempt inspires name-calling that can range from what we might call mild, to literally just look at someone and call them a fool, to, to something more extreme where we would use stereotypical, racially charged terms about a person to identify them and to demean and, and diminish their value in society. Contempt is also, though, seen in the ways that we refuse to care about those who are oppressed. Contempt is not anger. Contempt is indifference. And when it's spoken, contempt is words that convey indifference. I, I don't care about you. Interesting that a person could ever bring themselves to say the words, I don't care about you, and still call themselves a Christian who literally cared so much that he died. But Jesus is specifically speaking here about our choice to speak in anger or to project our anger with our words towards or about another person. And I just wonder if you took stock of your word choice, how easy it is for you to speak demeaning names about people. And I, I'm not talking about your sarcastic comments with friends. That's probably another sermon. But, uh, but, but the question is, when you see a person do something that annoys, frustrates, triggers, angers you, whatever, what comes out of your mouth? Jesus makes it clear. Those who, speaks those who speak insults at or about other people will be subject to hellfire, which is God's judgment. And then he says they'll also be subject to the courts, which is the judgment of other people. Which one are you more concerned about? I would say we should be concerned about both. So, so when you feel anger rising up, the goal here is not to become a person who bites your tongue. And we just walk around as a bunch of people with bloody tongues figuratively and maybe even literally, and we say, it's because I'm a Christian. That's not the goal here. The goal is to learn to speak a better word. The goal is not to speak hate and death and not even to force ourselves to resist speaking hate and death, but to learn to speak love. Because if, if we want to not have earthly consequences, we need to not just not speak earthly words. We need to learn to speak the kingdom words. Amen? Then we can have kingdom results. In fact, Jesus says that a little bit more in the next statement, uh, because finally we learn that we get in trouble when we are, find ourselves choosing anger, right? So it's not just holding anger, it's not just speaking anger, but we also are choosing anger. Jesus finishes his point by saying, if you're offering a gift at the altar, and there you remember your brother or sister has something against you, not someone you're mad at, but somebody has something against you, you've offended or wronged somebody, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother and sister, and then come back and offer your gift. Now he gives a second illustration. He says, reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on their way with them to the court. Or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge and the officer, uh, you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you've paid the last penny. 
Jesus uses these two illustrations to teach this point, uh, th- what it would look like for us to actually not choose anger. The first one is uh, what I would call interrupting sacrifice to reconcile a, re- a relationship. The point that Jesus is making here is not that you are in the middle of singing a song on Sunday morning on your weekly church attendance, and then you remember, oh, Johnny's mad at me. I better ditch church and go reconcile with Johnny, which, by the way, if you remember that next Sunday, go reconcile with Johnny. But the point he was actually making is when you make sacrifices. The average person hearing him wasn't making sacrifices every single day. They weren't even making sacrifices once a week. He's actually ramping up the significance of the moment he's talking about. Imagine your favorite Christian annual tradition, right? For me, it's like Easter Sunday and the Christmas Eve candlelight service. Imagine if I was standing up here and in the middle of delivering the candlelight service, we go, today, now we're going to light the third candle, which represents, hold on a second, Johnny's mad at me, got to go. And I literally just leave church and go and reconcile with the person that I realize I've offended. That's what Jesus is saying. Now, he's not saying you should make sure that you just ditch church whenever you realize you've got some business to deal with. What he's actually saying is your religious tradition is not as important as your relationships. And what if we lived like we meant that? Man, it's so crazy how we actually think, well, I I go to church. I go to church every Sunday, so I just, you know, me and Jesus are good, so I don't need to worry about Johnny. And Jesus says, well, I'm really worried about your church attendance because you're putting that over your relationships. I, for the record, did not just tell you to stop attending church. <laughs> Jesus is saying that our relationships are more important than our rituals. Every single time. The second illustration that he gives is about going to court with a person. He's actually saying uh, we should be interacting with a person positioned as our legal enemy. This would be the lesson here, that when you find yourself with an enemy, what would it look like for you to interact with them in a way that the goal or the outcome is not that you win, but that we win? Jesus uses a specific word here. He says, work towards a settlement. A a settlement. You know how you actually work towards a settlement? Is you have to come up with an idea that would be a blessing to them just like it would be a blessing to you. Otherwise, if you're just coming up with a way to convince them to drop the case before you get to the court, you're actually just finding a way to win in the preseason. And that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is not interested in your winning an argument. He's interested in your winning a relationship. Right? So if you are choosing anger in these moments, it says, No, Jesus, I'm all about honoring you with my religious traditions. And Jesus says, That doesn't honor me at all. If you choose tradition and ritual over the relationship that you know that you need to go reconcile. By the way, if you're sitting here going, I can't think of anybody that I need to go reconcile. You're probably good. Okay, cool. If Jesus at some point reminds you, it comes to your mind, well, that's when you need to go deal with it. If you're sitting here going, wait, what are the criteria? Do I really need to? And you like have a name in your mind and you're going, do I, am I in the clear or do I really need to go reconcile? Jesus is probably talking about you. Just play it safe. If you're not sure, go reconcile. You know what the worst that could happen is? Your relationship stays the same. The best that could happen is you gain a friend. And all that stress and weight that you carry around about that would be relieved. 
But the standard operation in court cases is distance, tension, fighting to win. Jesus tells us, drain all of your energy on reconciliation, or the court system and the laws and the division, all of that will end up draining you. He says, if you, if you want to fight the fight, you go fight the fight. You get to set the own standard, the terms of what you're going to do with your emotions when you have them, and when you're in a broken relationship moment, you get to decide. I hope that you would choose reconciliation instead of anger. But if you choose anger, just be aware that that will drain you, and you will never get out of that prison. In fact, it'll, it'll take everything from you until, Jesus says, until you don't even have a penny left to your name. So Jesus is encouraging us to do this radical thing where we go and talk with a person about the problem. I know that sounds radical. Or maybe to you it just sounds too obvious, but it's not really common practice. Right? Jesus says the goal is to reach a settlement. Ultimately what he's saying is love them. And you can't love a person that you are holding anger against or speaking anger against. Paul goes so far as to say to have legal disputes against one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? And right here, Paul actually offers a really good answer to a common pushback. The common pushback is we hear don't hold anger and then our brains go, but you don't know what they did to me. And I know this is a common pushback because this is the thing I say to Jesus every time right? And it's the thing I'm thinking about you guys as I'm writing this sermon. I'm thinking, I know what they're going to say to me. They're going to say, Pastor Tim, but you don't know what so-and-so did. You don't know how bad it was. You don't know how many times they did it. And I hear you. And I want you to hear me. No one is diminishing your pain. Jesus is is not diminishing the brokenness. Jesus is not saying that what they did is okay. He's not excusing it. But neither is he excusing you from being more like him than you feel like they were. Right? This is how we have to respond. Our goal is not to to respond in kind to broken people who did broken things to us in a broken way. Our, Our job is to be like Jesus who came to heal and restore and reconcile. Paul goes so far as to say we literally have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Like, we just, we are raised in this society to feel like we deserve justice and kindness. Like, people should treat us with respect. This is like the mantra of young people. I'm not going to respect you until you respect me. Which, by the way, it's an excellent point. To which Paul would reply, but God proves his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So while, you know, you were blatantly offending God with your sin and not respecting him, he died for you because he loves you. Matt, what would it be like if if you were willing to die to your anger because of love? And if you can't do it because you love the person, do it because Jesus loved you when you were unlovable. Because you don't actually have a leg to stand on to say, oh, you don't know what they did. And you know, what the, you know what the funny reality is? Jesus would look at you and you go, you don't know what they did, Jesus. I can't forgive them. And Jesus would go, you don't know the half of what they did, and I still love them. Right? We have no business withholding forgiveness. Anger is an emotion. Choosing to stay in anger rather than to reconcile is a sin. Now, we've talked about this recently. Uh, it, is, it is possible that 
there are relationships where it is not possible to be reconciled. Uh, Paul teaches us to do whatever it is that is within the realm of possibility for us, wherever it is possible, live at peace with all people. And where it's not possible, you pray for them from a distance, you love them, and you pray for your heart that you wouldn't withhold forgiveness. You don't have to be in relationship, in proximity, but you have to love. You're biblically mandated. So Jesus and Paul want us to understand anger rooted in what we think we deserve will lead us to getting what we actually deserve. To choose anger is like deciding that we get to call the shots on our emotions. And Jesus goes, that's totally cool. If you want to call the shots on your emotions, they're your emotions. You get to decide what you do with them. But if you want to play by the earth standards, the world standards of what you do with your emotions, and when it comes to anger, if you want to be in charge of your anger, then expect the world's results. The world's results will be more anger in return, judgment, condemnation, more people will hate you, you get super good at being angry and then wonder why everyone's angry at you all the time? Right? So who's, whose results do you want? Because you get to choose. But if we submit our emotions to Jesus, then we get to expect kingdom results. Kingdom results are healing of our woundedness. Even if it's not healing of our relationships, how good is it that Jesus would heal your heart even if there's still a brokenness on the other side? right? Uh, kingdom results look like peace. By the way, peace is, is, looks more like unity and healing than, than it does like a stalemate. That's a false peace. Jesus is saying, I'll give you a real peace where you don't even need to worry or think about a fight. And, and kingdom results could look like restored and, and stronger relationships. So instead of choosing our own reactions, here's what we must do. We must submit our emotions to Jesus. You're not in trouble for having emotions, but you could get yourself in trouble based on what you do with your emotions. And then we need to learn what love actually looks like. And I think that that might be on a case-by-case basis. So I would strongly recommend that you read your Bible and you pray. Because I don't always know the answer of what love looks like for me or for you. Again, no one's trying to minimize your pain. I want to be very, very clear about that. I understand that you might be hurting. I understand that you might not even like me very much because it sounds like I'm telling you you're not allowed to be angry at so-and-so, and and I'm not telling you that Jesus is. Okay? And I understand you have feelings about that. And I I empathize with your feelings. Believe me, I lived many years of my own life angry and feeling super justified in it. But I can tell you I have never felt more alive than when I choose to release and and accept the peace and the healing of Jesus, even though there's still brokenness. The same kind of love that God offered us when we were in our sin, God offers to those people, and he offers to us through our healing. So let's land the plane for today. After hearing all of that, we go back to where Jesus begins his thought, and he says, hey, you've heard that it said, do not murder. And we we kind of, it kind of sounds silly now when you think about it. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be so busy loving people and reconciling relationships. Murder is the last thing on my mind. But Jesus said this because the health of our hearts matters, and he, he said this because he values people, because to him, people matter. God values human life, and he values relationships, and so we should learn to value the same things. And since anger and contempt work against a person's value, they are dangerous, and while, they, while anger itself might not inherently be sin, it can lead to sin. So the question for the day is, what should we actually 
do. And I want to let you off the hook here a little bit. I think Jesus would let us off the hook. And I want to say to you, please don't go out of here and waste any of your energy asking how you can frame a life that avoids anger. You're going to exhaust yourself. Right? Like when I, when I left my house today, I thought, I'm driving to the church. I put zero thought in making sure I didn't drive to the prison. Right? But it's interesting how much energy we spend on trying to make sure we don't hate a person. And we, we put all this anger in saying, Jesus, help me to not drive towards the prison of anger. And Jesus is going, if you just chose to drive to the freedom of relationship and love, that would deal with itself. Drive here and you'll inherently not go there. Right? Spend your time with Jesus. Dallas Willard, I'll give you one more Dallas Willard quote for the day. He says, when I treasure those around me and see them as God, God's creatures designed for his eternal purposes, I do not make an additional point of not hating them or calling them twerps or fools. Not doing those things is simply a part of the package. So don't waste your time on not hating people and not being angry. Spend your energy loving God and loving people. Or Paul, Paul puts it this way. In a letter to the Roman church, he says, Don't owe anyone anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are all summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Paul concludes this thought by saying, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law, which is exactly what Jesus said he came to do, to fulfill the law. How did he do it? By expressing love. So what should we do when we experience anger? Let me give you three quick things. I'm going to give you three quick things. One of them I'm going to make super easy for you. Uh, the other one, it's going to be hard work. You have to do it later. Uh, number one is something called the prayer of examine. The prayer of examine, I, I'm not going to spend a ton of time getting into this, uh, but it's basically, uh, you know how you do like highs and lows with your family around the kitchen table? You go, what was the high of the day? What was the low of the day? A prayer of examine is you doing that with God. And I recommend you do it every day. In fact, just to help you out, I made a video recently, I put it on YouTube, and it is a, a quick, like, five-step how to do a prayer of examine. I'm going to make sure that when we post this video, this sermon on YouTube later, that we'll put the link to that video in the description of this sermon so that you can check that out. So if you're watching this later online, just scroll down, not right now, we're not done yet, we'll pray for you, and then scroll down, and then you can watch that video, all right? So there you go. It's just five quick tips on how you can do a prayer of examine. You do that one later. Uh, this one, this next one, I, I would say is probably super hard, but super liberating, and it's the discipline of confession. A few weeks ago, I said in, in the church, we need to learn to normalize confession. And when I say confession, I, I mean the biblical model of confession, which is we confess first to God and then to each other. And so we need to learn what it would look like to say to God that we're angry, and then we need to learn what it would look like to say to people that we are angry at them. And how do you say that in the way Jesus would say it? Right? I was on the phone with a brother, a brother in the Lord, like a fellow Christian, a person I love dearly. And I said the words, I want you to know I am mad at you. And, and then we worked on what I was mad about. And there was some stuff that I had to deal with, some stuff that he had to deal with. And you know what? Reconciliation of relationship is what happened because I confessed. Because I confessed. I am mad. 
And for every moment that I chose not to say that, it was probably my bad. Even if I was right or wrong or whatever, that's none of your business. <laughs> but it was my confession that was the catalyst for reconciliation. It was the thing that sparked the process, right? So think about all those people you're waiting for to come and apologize to you. And you're mad at them because they haven't yet. I don't know. I don't know that every person you need to go hunt them down. I don't know. But what if some of them, Jesus would say, maybe you need to make the phone call. And what if some of them, they make the phone call? And that's an answer to your prayer. Right? It goes every different direction. But you have to be willing to make confession. Certainly don't miss an opportunity when you're finally talking to that person. And they go, so how are we doing? And you go, everything's great. Because now you're lying. And then you have to confess two things. And it's just exhausting. The third thing I would say, and this one is fun, is, even though it can be hard to begin with, is to bless. So we examine, we make confession, and then we bless. And when I say bless, I mean the way we do it at Life Church is we pray a blessing over people. We do this at the end of, our, of all of our sermons. Uh, it, to pray a blessing over the person you are angry with is to ask God to do good things for them right? And then to look for ways to physically bless them. That's the fun part, is you get to actually be a blessing to somebody and win over a relationship by being a blessing. I asked a mentor one time when he was telling me to pray a blessing for someone that I was mad at. I said, how many times do I have to do it? And he said, until you mean it. So I learned in that moment that blessing is, is as much about my heart as it is about theirs, Right? Right. So along the way, we get to remember that we are forgiven because Jesus loves us, and we forgive in order to show the love of Jesus. We also remember that Jesus still loves us even when we are angry. So if you're sitting here feeling like, I'm such an angry person, what do I do? Right? Receive the forgiveness of Jesus. I mean, it's never too late to just let it go. I remember a moment when Sharon and I were having a... All right, look, I'm a real person. We was fighting. Not like fighting, but like fighting. It's how I fight. I'm a preacher. I fight with words. It's not always pretty. It's not, there's not always good exegesis behind my... Anyway, we were in one of those moments. And I did a really dumb thing. Uh, I walked out of the room where we were fighting before the fight was over. Don't laugh. And I went and I sat down at our kitchen table and I pretended like I had work to do. <laughs> no one's ever done this. I know I'm telling you this. Yeah. You guys don't do this. I remember the moment where Sharon, like in, in our kitchen, there's the, you know, there's the hallway down from where our bedroom is. And then you kind of have to like go around the corner to get into the kitchen. And I'm sitting at the kitchen table and I could see where the corner was. And I was kind of like, I'm not letting her sneak up on me. So I was facing the, the, the hallway, right? And I'm sitting there pouting and pretending like I'm busy and all that and getting nothing done. And I just remember Sharon comes around. She puts her foot in like this, like just like that, right? And I'm, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to confess to you that in that moment, I was like, oh, bring it on. Right? Because I see her foot goes like this, and she comes around, not like a sumo wrestler. She's petite, right? Like, but she just comes around like this uh, with her petite little frame, and she just looks at me. And then she goes, this is stupid. <laughs> just like that. 
and we kind of just like had a staring contest for half a second, right? And then we both just lost it. We just started laughing. Because you just realized, like, oh, my goodness, this is so dumb. You know that split second, though, when we had that staring contest? What I honestly remember thinking was, you get to choose. You get to choose. And so we chose. She made the choice before I did because she's a better person. <laughs> but we chose. Thanks for doing that, babe. That was a good choice. Um, did you bow just now? <laughs> oh. <laughs> All right. On that silly note, um, let's pray. Here's how, I, here's how I thought it would be good for us to end this moment. Um, if you are listening to this and it resonates for you, and you're holding anger, unforgiveness, you know that you have been wronged and you don't know how to let it go. I hear you. Jesus sees you. And he loves you. But he says, it's time. It's time to let my work for you and for them have its way. And the invitation would be to surrender. The invitation would be to confess and to release our pretending like we're in control and to let Jesus actually be in charge and have his way. Let's pray. Jesus, if, if that is any of us in this moment, and I confess before my friends and my family today that in many times that has been me. Jesus, we thank you that you created us to be emotional beings. We refuse to buy into the lie that says that having emotions is wrong. You designed us this way. And so we thank you, Lord, for even the moments where our, even our anger at what is unjust can lead us to surrender and righteousness, and we repent of the moments, and we confess that there has been, have been many in our lives when we have made poor choices with our anger. Jesus, help us to submit our feelings to you. Help us to talk about this with you and with people who are safe. Help us to know who safe people are. Help us to be at peace. Help us to forgive because you forgave us. Heal the places in our hearts where we are quick to get offended and slow to forgive. Humble the places that feel compelled to be right. In our humility, help us to really honor other people. And if this really resonates with you, and if there's like a name or a face floating in front of your mind right now, I just want to challenge and encourage and invite you to try something that I would then invite you to do many, many other times. Because saying it once won't magically change anything, but it will be a practice that will get you on the road to recovery. And if you could just say before Jesus, say, Jesus, I forgive them. Jesus, I forgive them. I'm suddenly aware that there might be people in the room that need to say, God, I forgive you because I've been, been mad that I didn't like and understand what you did. And so I'm here, but I'm on the fence about you. Jesus, God, I forgive them 
and help me to forgive you and do a work in our hearts. Do the work in our hearts, Jesus, when our anger is a result of a bruise that we carry. Heal us. Holy Spirit, be with us as we go and continue this work of healing as we continue to, the work, do, to do the work of submitting our anger to you. Life Church, may you be at peace, and may you be a peacemaker. Amen.